Good morning, Christ Community Church. Today we light the Advent candle signifying the love of Christ, and we celebrate the love he demonstrated in his first coming and are sustained by his love as we await his second coming. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 9 through 11. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather this morning on the second Sunday of Advent, where we we focus on your love this morning and how you so sacrificially send your son to uh, to die for us. And then we await the glorious second coming and all of the ways that you, you pour out your love upon us. And may we be able to reciprocate that and to pour out that love towards others who, who need that as well. We thank you and ask a blessing over this service. Amen. When my oldest grandson was the age of a lot of the kids that were up here several years ago, uh, he's now 16, but when he was much younger, uh, when he would come to our house, he would often ask me the same question again and again and again. It seemed like every time he came, he would ask me this question. And I think he asked the question because he, he wanted to challenge my answer, uh, so he'd just keep asking it. The question he would ask me was, do you love Noel? And Noel was our Brittany Spaniel that we own. And my answer to him would usually be something like, I like Noel. I want good for Noel. I want her to be well taken care of. I love you. And he'd say, yeah, but, but do you love Noel? And I'd say, I love you. And then he'd say, well, I love Noel. Why, why won't you say you love Noel? And I'd usually say, well, because I just don't throw love around in that willy-nilly way. I, you know, when I say it, I mean it. Uh, and I love you. Now, the truth is, I do throw love around in that willy-nilly way. I just like the interaction with him. And we do pretty freely use that word, right? We use it to describe all kinds of things. We love certain foods and sport teams, and we love naps, and we love, I don't know, the list goes on and on and on of things we love. And I'm actually not advocating that we be more selective in the use of that word. But, you know, there are times when we want to communicate that to somebody, and we want them to get, I'm not, this is different. I'm not using it in the way that we a lot of times use it. When I say I love you, I want you to understand I mean it. This is something deeper. This is something you can hold on to and trust. This is something that lasts. I want you to get it. You know, I think we want to communicate that so clearly sometimes to people we care about deeply in our lives because we all understand how important it is that people know they are loved. We know how important it is to us. Not just that we are loved, but that we know that we're loved. 
that we can hold on to it and trust it. Uh, We know that there's something just foundational to our well-being tied up in knowing that we're loved. We know it's just part of being human. We need to know that we're loved. We also know that it's kind of hard to trust sometimes. We know from our own lives, we know from the stories of others, that sometimes trusting that we are loved is a difficult thing. Even when people say it to us, sometimes it's a little scary to really trust it and believe it and hold on to it. That's because all of us have stories in our life where at times we trusted love and we were betrayed. Or maybe we trusted in love and it turned out to be very temporary or fleeting. Or maybe we trusted something as love and we found out it was only the appearance of love. It wasn't the real thing. We've all known what it is to be hurt by that at times. And so we're, we've longed for it deeply. We can't help but long for it. But there's another part of us that says, uh, I want to be careful. Because we know something we long for that deeply, if we trust in it and then lose it, it's taken away from us, it'll hurt deeply. It'll, it'll wound deeply. So we're careful. We're all a little bit like Charlie Brown standing there when Lucy's holding that football, right? We're all a little bit of, I long for it. I, I long to run up and kick that football because I want to trust that she wants good for me and that she'll be there for me. But I also have stamped in my memory all those times that I trusted her and I ended up flat on my back, hurting and feeling like a fool. So love's a risky thing. We can't get out of longing for it, but, it, but it's a little scary too. Uh, just this year, uh, that dog, Noel, uh, she's very old and got very sick, and I was the one that actually had to take her to put her to sleep. She had just gotten to the point that uh, that had to happen. And when I took her, uh, I was actually shocked. I was shocked as she was breathing her last breath that I found myself sobbing. I didn't expect that would happen to me over our dog. So the next time I saw my grandson, I said to him, well, you may be right, I did love the dog. Uh, I told him, but I still love you more. John chapter 3, the Apostle John tells us this remarkable story. This remarkable story of Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. If you have an NIV, it's, you know, especially if it's a red letter version, uh, it will be red letters all the way from verse 1 all the way to verse 21. Now there's some discussion about whether all of that should be listed as a direct quote of Jesus. Uh, many Bible scholars say, no, at verse 15 that should stop. And that's because in the Greek there aren't quotation marks, so they're making an interpretive decision there. And many say, no, at, at verse 15 it should actually stop being recording the direct words of Jesus. And then in verse 16, the Apostle John is really reflecting upon what he just recorded, what he just wrote down. And he's drawing our attention to it and emphasizing it in uh, John three sixteen, that passage that we know so well, that passage that is so familiar, that one sentence. And you know how it is when something is so familiar, when you've heard it so many times, there is a tendency to kind of just move past it. But the reason that verse is known so well, the reason that verse is one that probably everybody here can quote is because the truth in it is so incredible and so remarkable. It is so worthy of being known and spoken over and over again. 
And, and even if it is John's reflection rather than the direct words of Jesus in that moment, it's still the word of God. This is still inspired by the Holy Spirit. It still carries the same weight. These are words that we are meant to hear from God. He wants us to hear and he wants us to hold on to. And rightly, people for generations have clung to these words. But again, familiar words sometimes we pass over. I know them. I got it. Let's move on. Today I really want to try and call your attention back to those words, to that one sentence. To really pay attention to it, to really think about it, to turn your brains on for a moment. I know researchers tell us that our brains are very complex organs, but they're also very uh, efficient organs. In the sense that our brains kind of when it sees something familiar, our brain communicates to itself, uh, don't put a lot of resources there, you know that. You can move on to something else. Uh, it's why they tell us when we study, for instance, for a test, you know, to take a chapter in a, in a book and read it over and over again to prepare for a test is probably not the best way to study. Because once you see words that are familiar to you, your brain goes, don't waste your time, don't invest a lot of energy in that, move on. So you lose how much you retain dramatically each time you read through it. Again, I say all that to say, it is natural for us to assume that we get John 3.16. We've heard it so many times. But man, stop for a moment. Listen to those words. Hear what is said in them. For God so loved the world. So loved. God is trying to put emphasis there. So, not just God loved. God so loved the world. He wants us to feel it and to hold on to it, to know it, to trust in it that he loved the world. Now, the word world can sound kind of impersonal, so that maybe doesn't hit us so deep. It sounds like the world. And there's a sense where the world does mean all that God created. Uh, The Apostle John uses that word in this gospel 78 times. He uses it in his letters another 24 times. The word's cosmos in, in the Greek. So he uses this word a lot. He loves this word. And when he uses it, in a sense, in a kind of broad sense, he's talking about all that God's created, all the world. But he also, more specifically, when he uses it, seems to be talking about the realm of humanity. He's talking about all people. He's talking about people past and present and future. He's talking about um, people who were wise and not so wise. He's talking about people who were old and young, male and female, people of different races, people of different nationalities. He's talking about all humanity again, can sound kind of impersonal. But we know elsewhere in Scripture that when God talks about the world, it's not an impersonal thing to him. All of us, it's not an impersonal knowledge of us. For instance, another familiar passage is Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus speaking says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. God knows every single sparrow that falls to the ground. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. He knows that, but about you? He knows even the number of hairs on your head. He knows every detail about you. And then Jesus goes on and says, Fear not, therefore. You are more value, of more value than many sparrows. Solomon, in his prayer dedicating the temple in 1 Kings 8, says that God alone knows the hearts of all men. He not only knows those external things about us, God knows our hearts. 
He knows our beliefs. He knows our longings, the things we value, the fears that we have. He knows more about our hearts than we know about our own hearts, what is within us and what's true of us. He tells Jeremiah that he knew him before he was even in his mother's womb. And in Psalm 139, David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, before, O Lord, you know it all together. Even before I speak a word, God, you know it. This is not an impersonal knowledge of us. God knows us. And here in this passage, we're told that God loves the world. He loves you and you and you and you and me. He loves us, the world. In unimaginable detail, he knows us. But also, if we think about that, because God knows us is unimaginable detail, God also knows a world that has turned its back on him. God knows that we are a people who have habitually embraced darkness and sin. God knows our sins in unimaginable detail. God knows our sins even better than we know our sins. And yet John tells us God loves the world, even the sinful world, even sinful you and I. And then he goes on, say, okay, he loves the world, but is this a trustworthy love? Can I really hold on to this and trust this? And then he drives it home with these words. He gave his one and only son. You want to know if this is a trustworthy love? This is a love that moved him to give his son, not just his son, his one and only son, or in some translations, his only begotten son. I'm told that in the Greek, that's more emphatic even than it is in the English. It's a, it's a phrase that's meant to drive home just the fervor behind God's love. The passion in God's love for us. God loves the world. Gave his only son for us. That's love that's just unimaginable. A love that would send his son for us. And it would send his son to what Paul describes so beautifully in Philippians 2. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. The Father sent, and Christ chose to obey and step away from unimaginable power and beauty and joy to love us, to come for us, to step away from all of that to be born a baby in a manger, to live a simple life in a world that is saturated with sin, and to go to a cross and suffer torture and death in a way that's just unimaginable and to do it all to take upon his shoulders the weight of our sin that we might have our relationship with God restored Uh, that is love to send his one and only son and why did he do this the sentence goes on that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life Christ was given Christ came Christ lived Christ walked this earth, Christ died on that cross, and Christ Christ rose again from the grave that we might know life, life eternal. 
And that word life, there's a real economy of words used in this sentence, but that word life means more than just be alive. Life. The life God designed us for. Life with the giver of life. In communion with God. Life with all the beauty and fullness and completeness that God means for us. That we might know life and know it eternally. That's why God sent his son. And what I love in this verse is it also makes perfectly clear from the very beginning that the whole motivation for this, the whole reason that we can trust in the fact that we are saved, that we have been rescued and we have life, the whole, the whole cause of it and source of it is God's love. It's not that you were good enough or worthy enough, did anything to earn it. It's not that you were smart enough or valuable enough in yourself. God sent his son that he might die on that cross, that we might have eternal life. And it was always because of his love and his love alone that that occurred. Uh, I've mentioned before, and I want to say it again today, that one of the greatest privileges that I have known as a pastor uh, and as a pastoral counselor in this church for the last 30 years is that I get to sit uh, with people and they oftentimes risk sharing with me stories from their life that are sometimes the, you know, the hardest stories, sometimes the most painful and most difficult stories of their life. Sometimes where they have tasted just the harm that evil does in this world in just remarkable ways, unbelievable ways. Um, vulnerable stories, risky stories to share. And I've said this before that sometimes when I sit with people tell the worst of those stories, stories that just break your heart, lives that have just been filled sometimes with pain that's just unimaginable how they've been able to bear. The question that pops into my head all the time is, how is this person sitting across from me with that story? How is this person who I know, who loves well, who receives and trusts and risks enjoying love, this person who brings good and beauty to their world, this person who follows God with all their heart, how has that person come out of that story? Because you listen to that story and you think, this is a story where evil's going to win. This is a story that evil's going to be the victor. That's that story. Because, because the stories of love and the stories of evil, evil is way outweighing the love. But what I've come to find again and again in some of the hardest stories is that even though sometimes it looks like love is a small part of the story, love is much weightier than anything evil has to offer. It is much more powerful. I have seen it transform lives in remarkable ways. If you hear the story, you would think, that love? Love is a powerful, powerful thing. And I think it's because John says in one of his letters in 1 John 4, he says, love is of God. And he goes on and says, God is love. That any true love, anything that really is love, even, even when offered by human beings and with the distortion of our sins somehow mixed in, but if it's true love, then in some ways it is always an encounter with God. Because God is the very source of love. God is love. Take God out of the picture. Love ceases to exist in any form. God is the only reason that we can know love. The only reason anyone tastes love. And the love of God is a powerful, life-transforming thing.
And the thing I want you to know today is Scripture says God loves you. And he has demonstrated his love for us in such a way to scream at us, I love you. Turn towards me. And all God asks of us is believe me. Or John writes a little earlier in his gospel, receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. In 1 John 1.12, we read, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, and that, that phrase, his name, is a big phrase. Pass over it quickly. His name doesn't mean just the title. It means all that, his, all that he is. Those who believe in his name, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself, who became human, fully God, fully human, who died on that cross for us out of his love for us, who rose again to new life and now is alive, that we might know life. All he is, believe in his name. And to those, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, if, now if you fell asleep somewhere here and your brain shut down like our brains tend to do or passed over what I was saying, I'm going to repeat everything I just said. Uh, except instead of me really saying it, I'm going to read to you a quote from Billy Graham because I think he says what I just said better and in a more succinct way. So I want to read this quote to you. It's a rather long one, so let's pay attention. It was love that enabled Jesus Christ to become poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. It was love, divine love, that made him endure the cross, despising its shame. It was love that made him endure the contradicting accusations of sinners against himself, that restrained him when he was falsely accused of blasphemy and was led to Golgotha to die with common thieves. It was nothing but love that kept him from calling 12 legions of angels to come to his defense. It was love that caused him, after every known torture devised by degenerate man had been heaped upon him, to lift his voice and pray, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. From Genesis to Revelation, from earth's greatest tragedy to earth's greatest triumph, the dramatic story of men and women's lowest depths and God's highest heights can be couched in 25 beautiful words. Will you read these words out loud with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I'm going to close with a prayer, and these are actually the words of Paul that he prayed in Ephesians chapter 3, but I'm going to pray these words for us. Would you join me? We come before you, Father, the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. We pray that out of your glorious riches we may be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that all of us, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen.